Um, but uh, we're just glad you guys are here. If you have Bibles, uh, turn them to John chapter 13. If you're online uh, with us, grab a Bible. If you have a phone, you can go to your YouVersion app. Uh, but John 13, that's where we're going to be. And as you're doing that, one of the things that um, I was thinking about this week as uh, kind of preparing uh, for what we're going to talk about tonight um, was just this idea of parenting and coaching, teaching, um, anybody that is trying to instruct. Uh, and so you basically give the instruction out. And I think one of the most frustrating things on the planet must be when you are trying to give instruction and you give it over and over and over again. And yet there isn't any follow through. There isn't any execution. Have you ever had that moment where you've told somebody, this is what I need you to do. This is what I need you to do. This is what I need you to do. And yet they don't do it. And uh, it's just the instruction uh, without actually them applying it and doing it. And I've done a lot of coaching and that's just really tough. You're trying to figure out how in the world can I get you motivated to do what we're telling you to do. And then I wondered how frustrating it may be for God when his children are told, here's what I would like you to do. He gives clear instruction. And then yet, oftentimes, we fail short. We don't do the simple things that he has asked us to do. <clears throat> and so that is going to be applicable to what we're talking about uh, tonight. And a while back, uh, we did a chapter of the life of Christ uh, titled The Unpredictable Jesus. I totally stole that from North Coast Church out in California, uh, but they did a whole segment just called The Unpredictable Jesus. And I was like, that's so true. And the reason that we, we kind of think about that is because when we think in the terms of what the world would do, Jesus tends to do the opposite. It's kind of unpredictable. You're like, wow, if this is what the world is going to do, then we almost learn to anticipate, expect Jesus to do the opposite. I don't know if you remember uh, the Seinfeld episode where George Costanza decided, you know, everything I seem to do is wrong, so maybe I'll just do the opposite. So there's a whole episode where he started doing the opposite. That's the opposite George. And his whole life turned around. He actually got a girlfriend that was way out of his league. He got a job with the New York Yankees. His whole life started to change around because he started to do the opposite. And Jesus a lot of times does the opposite of what the world would say. And so if the world says, hey, it's all about your wealth, and Jesus is like, man, blessed are the poor. This is different. Instead of uh, pride, Jesus stresses humility. Instead of being first, Jesus stresses allowing others to go ahead of you. And when the world says to, to see people as lower class or less than kind of people, Jesus would elevate them and make them special and make them feel special. He had conversations with people that the religious leaders would never have conversations with. In fact, they were offended the fact that he would meet and eat with sinners. It bothered them. Jesus is going to continue this theme right up until he takes his place on the cross. And so we are in the final hours of the final week. <clears throat> it's Thursday evening, and in a few hours, Jesus will be betrayed. Uh, he's going to be brought before uh, the leaders. There's going to be a kangaroo court, a mockery of a trial. He will be beaten, whipped, 
spit upon. He's going to be humiliated to another level. And then he will be killed on a cross. And all of that is done to bring to completion of what Jesus came to the earth to do. It's why he came to the earth. He came to seek and save those who are lost and to redeem the world of their sins so that anyone who believes, according to John 3.16, that you love Jesus, you'd be in a relationship with him, and you accept him in your, into your life, and you would have eternal life. And if the disciples were reminiscing on Thursday night about the Passion Week, everything that's happened since Sunday, uh, they would have thought, man, just, just a, a few days ago on Sunday, Jesus entered into the city and he was treated like royalty. People were putting their garments down on the ground that he was going to walk on. Uh, they would put palm branches down there. And that was just symbolic of royalty. That's what they would do. And so that was pretty amazing. And then uh, on uh, Monday, on Monday, he would go into the temple and he would clear it out. He would cleanse the temple. Uh, people buying and selling, and Jesus throws some tables over. That's pretty cool, and it would be a, a pretty good attention getter. Got a lot of people's attention. On Tuesday, Jesus gives his final message, his final words to the religious leaders, and he warns them of their hypocrisy, uh, that they are actually wearing masks. That's actually where that word hypocrite actually comes from, that they're pretending to be something on the outside while their hearts are incredibly corrupt. They have darkness and unhealthy hearts. And uh, they didn't accept Jesus at all. In fact, they're at that time negotiating the terms to put him to death. So on Tuesday, as Jesus is putting them in their place, woe to you, you hypocrites. They're actually making a deal to put him to death, to have him killed. Later on Tuesday, Jesus turns his focus towards his second coming, kind of what we talked about uh, a couple weeks ago, that one day he will return and no one but the Father knows when he's going to come back. But he's going to come back. And what we do between now and then, or between now until we take our last breath, is a very big deal to God. What we choose to invest our lives into. And it's either going to be we're going to invest our into ourselves, or we're going to invest into the kingdom. And God's saying, I need you to invest into my kingdom. If you're going to be a follower of me, that's what I need you to do. It's very important. We don't hear a lot about Wednesday, uh, but we're pretty sure this is when Judas finalizes his deal. Uh, to be rewarded financially for betraying Jesus. We'll talk about that in a little bit, which leads us Thursday evening. And in Thursday evening, Jesus is actually done with his public ministry. Never again will he uh, be speaking out to the masses. He is turning his entire focus over to a private group of men known as his disciples. And he is going to minister to them in his final discourse. And so Jesus is going to teach them. And that's what he does on Thursday night, and he's going to do that for them. And that's where we're going to pick it up in John chapter 13, verse 1. It says this, 
before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. And a lot of times, uh, in order for us to understand kind of what's taking place during the Passover, we actually have to go back into the Old Testament and learn what is the Passover all about. And of course, most of us, when we go to Genesis and we read Adam and Eve, and they had children, and then it went down through several generations, and it got to Noah. And by the time it got to Noah, it says the world was very wicked. In fact, it says Noah was the only one that was righteous. He's the only one that God's like, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you, and we're going to restart the whole thing. And so God sends a flood, and we have Noah and their children. Their children have wives, and we start to see the generations go again. Until a time where we have a man named Abraham. And Abraham uh, would finally have a son named Isaac. And he would have other children, many children. Uh, but Isaac uh, would go on and Isaac would have children. Uh, he would have a son named Jacob. And Jacob would have a son named Joseph. And Joseph would end up getting kind of betrayed on his own by his brothers. Uh, sold out. In fact, they, their plan was to kill him, uh, but one of the brothers has a guilty conscience and puts a halt to it and says, no, let's, let's actually profit from him. Let's sell him off. And uh, what uh, the world meant and what his brothers meant and what other people meant to harm him, God used for good. And Joseph would end up through a 13-year period of kind of a living hell that he would go through, uh, would end up um, trusted by the Egyptian governor and the rulers over Egypt, and they would make Joseph uh, kind of the second in command over all of Egypt. And because of the way that Joseph interpreted things, and we know that we have seven good years of harvest, and then we have seven years of uh, famine, and it was during that time period that a lot of the Israelites would come to Egypt for food, <clears throat> including his brother. And that's how a lot of the Israelites end up in Egypt, and then several, and as the generations go, they would become the slaves in Egypt. And there's a reason I'm telling you all that, because now we've moved just a little bit forward to a guy named Moses, and God says, enough is enough. And he calls Moses to lead his children out of Egypt. And if you guys are familiar with this, or familiar with church, and you might know the story of the plagues, and Pharaoh, or he goes, Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, hey, you need to let God's people go. And Pharaoh already had a hard heart. God just extra hardened it. God already knew how he was going to respond, but God, so he just, you know what, I'm going to harden your heart just a little bit more to make a little bit more of an impact. And we see these plagues that would happen and Pharaoh would be like, okay, that's enough. You can leave, you can go. And then he would have a second thought, hard, hard heart, and he would change his mind, and this is time and time again, until the place where um, that comes to our first Passover. And the Passover basically was the final straw. It was the one that rocked Egypt to the core, where the death angel would go through every house, over each house, 
And the Israelites would have put the blood of the lamb. They would take the best lamb that they would have and they would sacrifice it. And they would take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost. And the death angel would pass over those homes. And it says that that evening there was wailing that the Egyptians who lost their firstborn sons because they did not put the blood on the doorpost. Pharaoh would lose his sons. And the Israelites would actually celebrate this Passover. It's kind of interesting that we would celebrate such a horrific event. But it was a, 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 something that they, uh, it was kind of a symbol of their freedom, and God leading them out of Egypt. And it was a big deal. And the Passover then would be celebrated every year from then on. In fact, Jews today still will celebrate the Passover. It's a big deal. And Jesus is having his final Passover with his disciples. And he's breaking bread. He's having a meal with them. And having a meal with somebody is a big deal. And it's coming together. There is unity in having that meal together. And it says that he had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth and now he loved them to the very end. This actually, the word in the Greek uh, actually means to completion. It is perfect. It is perfection. Jesus loved them so very much, and he loved them perfectly. And although Jesus, his love is perfect, even to the bitter end, not everyone in the room is going to love him back. And that's where we pick it up in verse 2. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Now, many of us here have had someone close to us probably uh, betray us. It might have been a friend, a family member, a spouse. Uh, when it is someone that we actually love deeply, it's really hard. Incredibly difficult. And that hurt was just a little bit extra. Judas was with Jesus for three years, and yet he did not love him. And he's already, in his heart, decided to betray him and have him killed. Judas is the guy that stayed quiet. He, he didn't talk a whole bunch. He just kind of pushed things down. And uh, it's... We, we find out that he uh, would steal from the ministry fund and is now ready to take part. He's willing to participate in the death of Jesus. He has made a deal with the devil for 30 pieces of silver, and this is actually foretold in Zechariah 11. It's basically a few hundred bucks. It's a few hundred bucks. It says in that verse that we just read, Simon's son. Interesting. How would you guys like for your only mention of your name in the Bible to be that you raised a son that would betray Jesus for a few hundred bucks? And yet, that unfortunately is Simon's claim to fame. He raised a son that would hate the man that showed nothing but love for him. For all of us parents, especially for us fathers, 
don't miss this passage in the detail because I think I've read it so many times and I've missed the fact, man, there's so much responsibility that we have because we're either raising our children to love Jesus or we are raising our children to hate him. And we have to do a better job because it is not only our lives that are affected, it is affecting our children and it is affecting our grandchildren. Generations are affected. And we see that all throughout the Bible where people failed to invest and teach their children properly and it would affect generation after generation. So we need to pray that our children follow after Jesus and we do everything in our power to lead them up so that they will love him instead of actually betraying him. And we are the primary example of what that looks like to them. And so we need to be careful that we have not bought into the lie that attending church on Sunday is going to make the difference, that attending a few Bible classes is going to make the difference. Think about this. Judas spent three years at the University of Jesus Christ. He spent three years at the church of Jesus Christ. He listened to the best sermons ever preached because they were preached by Jesus Christ. Judas had a front row seat to the life and the ministry of the Savior. He witnessed the feeding of the five, or what I would say the 15,000. He witnessed him walking on water, casting out demons, healing people of their diseases, making the lame to walk and the blind to see. He saw him raise people from the dead. And so if Simon's son spent three years with the perfect preacher, the perfect teacher, the perfect friend, the perfect leader, the perfect healer, and he was camping with Jesus every single night, and he still gave his heart over to Satan. So I feel like we need to be very careful that we don't fall into that trap or that lie that if we just expose our kids to some Sunday church, that they're going to be okay. Because all these things Judas witnessed, and yet his love for Jesus was simply an act. The only one he loved was himself. Because of that, he would actually miss the greatest miracle that Jesus would ever perform, the resurrection. He would miss it because he would, soon after he betrays Jesus, go out and kill himself, and go straight to hell. Someone asked me a few years ago what the biggest issue that we have in our world right now, and I actually think it still applies today, but I basically said I, I believe that we just don't have enough godly men raising our sons to be godly men. We just need to do better. Ephesians 6 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way that you treat them, but rather listen, bring them up with the discipline and the instruction that comes from the Lord. We need to ask them, How are you doing? Where are you at in your faith? Where are you struggling? It's one thing to have the enemy at the table with you, like Jesus does, 
But we are, what we are about to see is the stark difference between light and darkness, uh, between God's perfection and Satan's wickedness. And we pick it up in John 13, verse 3. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. And so he got up from the table, he took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. And then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he had around him. We find out through Luke chapter 22 that what the disciples were doing leading up to this moment is that they had uh, gotten into an argument or discussion amongst the disciples of who is the greatest among them. We've seen this happen several times before where they're jockeying for position. And so as they're jockeying for position, and I'm pretty sure Judas was not entering that conversation. (laughs) No, I'm the greatest. But obviously, Jesus' words in Matthew 23, when he says that the greatest among you shall be your servant, has fallen on deaf ears amongst the disciples. Jesus has been teaching a message of the humility of love for quite some time, and now he demonstrates it to his disciples. I've taught it to you verbally. Now let me show you what it looks like. And feet washing, feet feet being washed was was the norm in the ancient world. Uh, In fact, it was a very common practice, an expectation that when you would go to someone's home, you would have your feet washed by the host. Not not the actual host, but the lowest position in the house, the lowest servant in the house. Usually it would be a slave. They would be the one that would wash your feet. And you don't know humility until you wash dirt and dung off of some of the nastiest feet in the room. Because two things haven't been created yet. Shoes and asphalt. So think about it. Now, I shared this uh, with you before but it's worth mentioning again. I had the extreme privilege uh, a few years back to go to a ministry in Nairobi, Kenya, in the slums. It was one of the largest slums in Nairobi called Karangwari. And uh, you guys who know me well know that I wear my rainbow sandals pretty much everywhere I go, including the slums in Nairobi. (laughs) And so uh, I'm in my sandals and uh, we would be walking around through the slums of Nairobi and of Kangwari, and they don't have plumbing in the slum there. And so what they would do is they would go to the bathroom in plastic bags, and they would just toss the bags into the street and so in the road. And so the road is basically made of mud and dirt and feces, and so and that's what it becomes. And so it wasn't really a problem until. Um, one evening when God decided it needed to rain all night. So it rains all night, and of course, we're not going to let rain prevent us from being able to go do ministry to the children in the slum, and so we're walking through one of the dirt roads in the slum, and uh, my foot slipped 
and it went down into all the muck. And I had just caked gook all the way up to my ankle. And at that moment, I had my germaphobeness went to another level. And I was grossed out on another level. I'm like, why in the world am I wearing sandals? Um, and I, you know, I'm like, man, oh, ooh. And the person next to me is like, yep, that's what it is. So, but what was shocking and disgusting for me at that moment, because later that day, I had to get some water and wash my feet, and I just, I knew it was all over my feet. But what was shocking and disgusting for me would have been the norm in Jesus' day. Dust, dirt, mud, and dung. It would be the responsibility of the Gentile slave or servant to wash the feet of the guest. So here's Jesus with all the power, all the authority. He has all the authority from the Father. So much power. And what does he do with it? What does he do with all that power? I always wonder that. Um, when I go to the gym, and you can tell I go to the gym all the time, but when I have been to the gym, I've always seen the guys that are working on the free weights, and they are just massive, and their muscles all bulging out, and I've always wanted to ask them, what do you do with all those muscles? They flex, you know, in the mirror, they go to Waterworld, and they don't move their neck at all. You have all that power, all that muscle. Jesus has all the power And what he does with it is he shows his disciples what love looks like. Because as they're contemplating what greatness looks like, Jesus shows them what greatness looks like by getting up, taking a towel, pouring water into a basin, and then kneels down and begins to wash their muddy, dirty feet. The humility of love on full Jesus does what actually should have been done already by one of the disciples. One of the disciples should have already gotten up and at least washed Jesus' feet. Jesus is a priest. He is a rabbi. He is their Lord. He is their teacher. Somebody should have got up, and they may have just been silent trying to figure out, okay, which one's going to take the responsibility of Lois? So maybe they're just being quiet, saying, who's going to do it? Who's going to do it? So as they're jockeying for prominent position, waiting to see who's going to admit the lowest position, Jesus shocks everyone. And can you imagine how stunned it would have been? they would have been stunned just to see that happen? Feel like if you had royalty in your home and they got up and started cleaning your toilets? How awkward and embarrassed the disciples must have felt when their king leader takes the position of a lowly servant and begins to wash their feet. Jesus does for them, taking the place of a servant, and he shows them what love really looks like, and it is deeper than they even know because, think about it, he's washing all the disciples' feet, including who? Judas the one that Jesus knows is participating in his execution. 
one who's plotting to help kill him. And yet Jesus still shows love, washes his feet. I struggle loving people that give me the wrong order at the restaurant. And Jesus is loving the man who's pretended to love him back and is going to have him killed. In verse 6, it says, When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, You don't understand now what I am doing, but someday you will. And no, Peter protested, you will never wash my feet. I always would love to be kind of a fly on the wall when Peter does some of the things he does because it reminds me of myself. Uh, but this would have been my response. Um, like I said, I don't, I don't even like it when I have guests in my home that are cleaning dishes in my kitchen. I want to be a good host. I want to provide a meal. I want to take care of things after. And Peter is like, this is not right. You need to back off. It's not your responsibility to wash my feet. That is underneath you. And Jesus' response is kind of like, if I don't wash your feet, you will go to hell with dirty feet. That's, I paraphrase that. But that's kind of what he says. Jesus' reply is, unless I wash you, uh, you won't belong to me. If I don't wash your feet, you will not belong to me. Anytime Peter tries to prevent Jesus from doing something that he needs to do in order to be the Savior of the world, Jesus puts him in his place. So Peter, several times, gets a strong response from Jesus. And it's because that's what he needed. You know, some people need the look, other people need a kind word, and some people need a strong rebuke. Peter is the one that needs the strong rebuke. And then Peter goes from one extreme to the other. He goes from, you will never wash my feet, to, this is what he says, then wash my hands and my head as well, Lord, not just my feet, let's jump in the pool. Jump in the pool with me, wash everything, right? I heard a pastor refer to Peter as being the one who always got it right the second time. He's the guy that's always going to get it right the second time. Not the first time, but the second time. And then Jesus gives a sermon in just a couple of verses. In verse 10, he says, uh, Jesus replied, a person who has bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him. That is what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. In physical terms, it would be like if you took a shower you're all clean, you get all dressed, you're looking good, but then you run outside barefoot uh, to get the mail. And as you're doing that, you walk through some dirt. You're not going to come back in and take a shower again. You're probably just going to get a wet cloth or some wipes and clean off your feet. That's what it looks like physically. But spiritually speaking, here's what Jesus is saying. This is fascinating. This is awesome. He's like, you have received salvation because of your love for me. But every once in a while, 
We need to clean up certain areas that have been soiled by sin. We need to address those little areas. It doesn't mean we're not saved. It just means we need to address where we got a little dirty. When I read through this, I'm like, I always try to figure out, okay, what is the application? What can I do? And I figure we can either be like Peter or we can be like Judas. None of you are going to be like Jesus. Stop thinking you are. Judas, what he did was he kept his sin secret. He wore the mask and wore it well. Only Jesus knew in his heart all along what he was planning to do. In fact, if you go back to John chapter 6, John chapter 6, Jesus answered them. He says, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is the devil? This was a long time ago. And yet Jesus knew exactly where Jesus' heart was. Jesus, G- Judas had all the information, but was never interested in transformation. He never wanted to change. And this is what it looks like for people who read God's word, but never look to change their lives accordingly. This is what it looks like when people never open up about their sin. They never address it. They just hide it away. The addictions that they have, they'd rather just keep it hidden, keep it in the closet, than confess it and look to actually repent and have Jesus so badly wants that for us. He wants us to be free of those things. And unfortunately, it would cost Judas everything. But yet he had all the information. He chose not to allow it to transform and change him. Information without transformation is useless to God. So what is God interested in? I love the way Peter does it. Peter continues to learn, uncomfortably sometimes, right? But it would look like this if we take God's word and we open it up and we dig into it and we take that information and we allow it to transform us. Notice the difference in Peter because Peter was far from perfect, but he was always interested in getting better. He usually messed up the first time but he hardly ever messed up the second time. And that is the life that we can live. We make a mistake, we learn from it, we move on, we get better. Verse 12 says, After washing their feet, he put on his robe again, and he sat down and asked, Do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. And I love this, verse 15, and this puts everything together. It says, I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, slaves are not greater than their masters, nor is a messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. You know, it's not about washing feet. 
without serving. Washing feet just happened to be the service that needed to be done at the time. And so Jesus chose to wash feet. But it's about putting others ahead of yourself. It's about forgiving and loving those who have hurt you. It's about being less of you and more of him. So it's so important for us to understand that we need to choose to serve instead of jockeying for position. I want to close. One of the most amazing experiences that I've ever had in ministry was quite a few years ago, and I was doing uh, high school ministry in California. We had taken about 50-some high school students uh, to a retreat up near Thousand Oaks, and for a couple years, I had been wanting to do this, um, a foot washing ceremony. Uh, but we just didn't, it, it has to be right. And you, the students need to be in, in, a, in, a, in a good spot. And so we just prayed and continued to pour into them. And we planned it out that our adults would go around and wash the feet of every student in the room. And it was amazing because I didn't know how long it was going to go. And I told our worship guy, because he was going to be playing guitar and singing the entire time. And I'm like, it could go at least 30, 40 minutes. So you need to be prepared for 30, 40 minutes of, of just singing, worship, playing the guitar. And he's like, I can do that. And after all the adults got done washing the students' feet, the students took over. They started to wash each other's feet. They started to wash the feet of the adults. And I'll never forget the moment where my wife came up to me and she washed my feet. And I was wrong. It didn't last 40 minutes. It lasted four hours. My worship guy had blood on his fingertips from playing so long. Apologized to him and he said it was worth every minute. He had tears in his eyes as he would have his feet washed as he was washed. The humility of love is shown in both washing and being washed. Verse 15. Jesus says, I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. And there it is. Look at the life of Christ. Look at the things that Jesus has done for you and be willing to do the same for others. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for showing us what it looks like to be great. It is actually to take on the heart of a servant. It seems like once we try to figure out, we know who you are, we've got you figured out, you continue to show us new. You are the unpredictable God. And I pray that we will look at the things that you did, the things that you've said and given instruction to, and we will do everything that we can. Do the same for others. So we will open up your word. We will allow it to transform us as it's 
won't be information in our heads, but it will transform the way that we live, that we will not conform to the pattern of this world, So help us, Father God, to do that. Pray that we'll just open ourselves up completely to you. Allow your spirit to work through us. And as we shift into a time where we remember the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate act of love through communion, that it will be real to us, significant to us. We give you this time this morning.